recently said, I'd teach two weeks on baptism, and then on the 17th, I have a very important high and holy obligation. I'm going to Beaumont for my 40th high school uh, <laughs> reunion, so I can't be here that Sunday. And then the next two weeks, I, I will speak on uh, Holy Communion. Uh, but when I talked to Walt and said, oh, we're going to have communion after the service today, I said, well, maybe I should talk about communion these two weeks. And so somebody dutifully changed all the the things, and then Walt said, well, yeah, but there's also going to be communion the last Sunday that you're here because it's a five total, da 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 so we switched it back. But I'm speaking about baptism today, and uh, I'm delighted to be here and to be uh, with this congregation today. Uh, hear this brief uh, word from the Holy Scriptures from the Gospel according to St. Mark, uh, beginning at the first chapter and the fourth verse. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Eternal God, as we come to consider your word and the promises for, and challenges for our lives that we find in it, we pray that your spirit would descend, be with us this day, uh, as we consider your word, for we ask it in Christ's name, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to say some things uh, about the rights of the Christian church. Uh, and yes, I'm just realizing I actually have the clicker that should be able to advance slides. Uh, nope, that's a pointer. Hang on. That's a clicker. Yes, I want to talk about the uh, Christian uh, sacraments, the term that we use to describe the most central uh, acts, practices that we perform as Christian churches. I'm going to spend two weeks on sacraments and then specifically baptism today uh, and then next week. Uh, what do we mean by the term, now that's interesting, um, Oh, that's cool. That turns things on and off. I guess I need to go forward to advance. How do you like that? I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it, really. It's, it's good. It's good. It's like an arrow that goes forward, and that means you go forward. That's really good. I like that. It's, it's intuitive. Yeah, Kent. Yeah, the church. I need that. I need this badly. I really do. And high-tech stuff like this for me. Yeah, I want to talk about background to Christian sacraments uh, and our beliefs about baptism. Anybody recognize that scene right there? Uh, that would be right here, right? Okay. Hello. Talking about this particular location. How do we talk about sacraments traditionally? Now, you may remember a definition of sacraments that's very familiar, but I'm going to talk first about how our Catholic sisters and brothers talk about sacraments. Catholics uh, tend to define sacraments as sacred acts derived from Christian teaching, especially the Christian scriptures, that have outward signs associated with inward 
divine grace. Okay? Outward signs associated with inward divine grace. So if you grew up as a Catholic, you would have learned to speak of seven sacraments. The first of the sacraments is the sacrament of baptism. The second is the sacrament of confirmation, uh, when uh, we make a public profession of our faith. Uh, the third is the sacrament that is typically called the Mass by Catholics. Uh, and in ecumenical parlance in recent years, we've started to use the term Eucharist. Do you know the term Eucharist? I, I think the reason why it was a really good ecumenical term is because basically nobody used it before the 1960s, uh, except maybe a few Anglicans, and it's become the kind of chic popular theological term uh, in recent years. But Eucharist or the Mass, what we would call Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, that's one of the sacraments. The sacrament of confession, penance, reconciliation. Catholics actually use a variety of terms here to describe uh, the scriptural teaching that we are to confess our sins to one another and that uh, whosoever sins you retain, they are retained, and whosoever sins you loose, they are loosed. So uh, in Catholic practice, you would come to a church, make a confession to a priest, uh, and if the priest is satisfied that you are sincere about your penitence, that you truly love Christ, the priest uh, acting on behalf of the church and God will pronounce your absolution. I absolve you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the seven sacraments. Now the next two are supposed to be options. Uh, one is marriage and the other is ordination or holy orders. Um, the way it worked in medieval Catholicism is that you either made a decision to be married, uh, to have a Christian household over which you would be a kind of priest, or you would be ordained as a priest or consecrated as a member of a religious order. Typically, a Catholic would only experience one of those two sacraments, and that means most Catholics experience only six of the seven sacraments overall, though it is entirely possible that if a Catholic man's spouse, if a Catholic man's wife dies, that man can then, uh, under certain circumstances, uh, be ordained. So it was possible to, uh, to move back and forth between the two, but not the usual way of things. The final sacrament uh, used to be called last rites or extreme unction or last anointing, extreme unction sounds awfully serious, unction means anointing with oil and extreme meant the last one. Uh, and as you know from any movie involving a seriously ill Catholic, uh, it was the last thing uh, that you did on earth was the priest was called in to perform the last rites, the anointing of the sick. Now the press has not figured this out yet but it was only 39 years ago that the Catholic Church stopped speaking about extreme unction or last anointing or last rites. Uh, and 70, uh, 39 years ago in 1973, see I can calculate this very easy because it's my 40th high school reunion uh, coming up. Uh, 39 years ago the Catholic Church really redefined this sacrament not as extreme unction or last rites but uh, from 1973, they began to refer to it as the anointing of the sick. Uh, and 
uh, unlike the old way they performed it, which could only be performed once, uh, in the revised sacrament, uh, it can now be performed any time a Catholic person is gravely ill and the priest comes and uh, anoints them with oil for uh, healing. Uh, so um, it's one of those things that I, I think they didn't run this by the marketing department when they came up with the revision of the sacrament because it just ruins Catholic movies and stuff. Uh, uh, and the press, as I say, still hasn't got it. When Pope John Paul was dying uh, in 2005, right? Um, the, the press was just so anxious to say, a priest has been called for last rites. Well, a priest wasn't called for last rites. A priest was called for the anointing of the sick. Uh, but it's just so much more dramatic to say the priest has been called for last rites. I actually wonder how many people just died when they saw the priest coming <laughs> back in the middle. Ah, it's the last thing. It's the last for you know. Uh, but um, a lot of people survived this, actually. And so now it's a repeatable uh, sacrament. If we look at a Protestant definition, you can probably almost say this with me, especially if you grew up as an Episcopalian uh, and you learned the Catechism of the Book of Common Prayer. But the revised Catechism, the Book of Common Prayer of 1979, says that a sacrament is, uh, sacraments are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace given by Christ as sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. Now, the traditional definition, I think, was that a sacrament is an outward and visible means of an inward and spiritual grace uh, given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, though, Methodists have typically never gone through the Episcopal Church catechism. We know those words. We know those words. Where did we hear those words? Well, interestingly, where we heard those words is at the wedding service. When the traditional service, the minister would say, the wedding ring is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, which means it sounds like it's a ah, ah. no. Because the, the, import, the critical definition here, that really is the definition changes between Catholics and Protestants, but the critical element that changes is the matter about given by Christ. You see, the argument is that two sacraments were ordained by Christ in the gospel, and those were baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of them are acts involving outward signs, water in the case of baptism, and the signs of bread and wine in the case of the Lord's Supper, and Christ gave us a command that we should follow those things. Now, if you go back through that list of seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, what you will find is that we do all those five things that we don't call sacraments. We do all of that stuff, right? We do confirmation, we do ordination, we do marriage, and yes, we anoint people who are gravely ill uh, to pray for their healing. So, in a sense, you could say, okay, what's the big deal? In fact, I'm going to say, what's the big deal in, in an even bigger way? Because guess what? The word sacrament isn't in the Holy Scriptures. Why should we be so worked up about what the definition 
of a sacrament is if it's actually an unscriptural, non-script, I'm not going to say unscriptural, it's not an anti-scriptural term, but it's a, uh, a term that's not found in the Holy Scriptures. Well, I guess the issue really is that it's just our way of kind of summarizing what the most central rites uh, are of the Christian faith that involve these outward signs. Uh, but, you know, even within Catholic and Eastern Orthodox practice, Eastern Orthodox churches don't use the word sacrament. They tend to speak of mysteries, but they do identify seven mysteries as central to the Christian faith. The only difference being that instead of confirmation, they speak of the great anointing, the chrismation that accompanies baptism as one of the uh, seven mysteries of the church. Uh, but despite that, both Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians would say that the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper really are the great sacraments. They will refer to them as the dominical sacraments, and dominical comes from the word dominus, that means the Lord, and they, that means just exactly what the Protestant definition says here, that they are the two great sacraments instituted by Christ himself, the two things that involve an outward sign, an inward grace, and a command of Christ that we should continue them. But here's another issue. Is there something we're missing? Is there something that Christ said we should do that actually has an outward sign attached to it that really would fit that definition that Protestants have traditionally given of a sacrament? Foot washing, yeah, exactly. And interestingly, one of our predecessor churches in the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Church or the Evangelical Association, uh, practiced uh, foot washing. And in their first doctrinal statement, Tim, I had to go get this translated at one point, but I remember they said, we leave the issue open as to whether you do or don't practice uh, foot washing but they at least left that issue open. One of the interesting things about Catholic practice is that the ancient church at Milan, now part of the long part of the Catholic church, uh, still practices foot washing, kind of, sort of, maybe like a sacrament because it has that command of Christ uh, attached to it. So I wouldn't want to, to build a watertight definition of sacraments, uh, but it, it is true that Christians in uh, throughout the world, throughout the centuries, have largely regarded these two acts, baptism and uh, I'm going to prefer the term the Lord's Supper because that's the term that St. Paul himself uses uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Baptism and the Lord's Supper to talk about these two central acts that have an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given to us uh, by Jesus Christ. But I want to paint a larger picture here. Uh, and in fact, speaking of pictures, here's a picture I took Friday afternoon in the Lois Blanton building in the men's room. So women, some of you may have never seen this before. I'm not sure. Uh, over at the Blanton building. Uh, that facility right there is a very modern looking facility and it is an ablution Center. I don't know actually what you call this, an ablution station. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just imagining uh, advertising that says we're the ablution solution, you know, uh, that sort of thing. 
This, is, uh, this building was built in 2002 or thereabouts, and it, uh, it, one of the requests from Muslim students at SMU is that we uh, design a place where they can practice the ablutions that are part of the Muslim faith. Uh, so uh, this has been going on for centuries and centuries, and as I will say, it may well be that early Christians practiced some forms of ablutions, but let's look at this uh, material. First of all, water has been associated with cleansing uh, for centuries. I mean, since ancient times, people use water to clean things, so it's not surprising that in a lot of religious traditions, there would be a use of water in a kind of ritual action uh, that suggests uh, cleansing or cleaning something. Uh, so Hinduism has uh, a number of different kinds of ablutions. You've probably seen, actually, when Hindus go down into the Ganges River to bathe at a certain time of the year, that would be called an, uh, an ablution. Uh, and it's not unrelated to the idea of anointing with oil. Now, you may not think about this because whenever I get oil on myself, like if I'm working on my car or something, I immediately go in and get the gojo or whatever we've got to, to wash the oil away. But in the ancient world, uh, when they didn't have soap like we use it, they sometimes used oil as a cleansing agent. So anointing with oil was actually not only a way of sort of making your body feel a little better by anointing, but it could also be uh, a symbol of cleansing. So cleansing rituals often used water, but they often used oil as well, and anointing should be seen as a related practice. So an ablution is a cleansing uh, ritual that involved the use of water, very common in the ancient world. Uh, and the Muslim tradition has continued some of those uh, rituals. Uh, as I understand it, Muslim men, and I, don't, I just don't know if this is true with women as well, but Muslim men, before they say their daily five times of prayer with other men, uh, and uh, before they touch or handle the Quran, they're supposed to engage in a water cleansing ritual, uh, and that's what this uh, cleansing station or ablution solution is, uh, is designed to do over in the Blanton building at SMU. Now, I want to be clear about something. In talking about parallels between Christianity and other religions, I really don't want you to go off and, and say, well, what Dr. Campbell says is that all religions teach the same thing and it's all the same stuff and they all... That, that's really not true. If you know about different religious traditions, you know that what we teach is vastly different and any serious Hindu, any serious Muslim, a serious Jew, a serious Christian knows that we teach very different things. But on the other hand, it's not surprising that we have a lot of things in common, teachings and sayings uh, and even ritual actions that kind of make sense uh, across the boundaries of different religious traditions. Uh, Jesus says, do unto others as you have others do unto you. But did you know Jesus didn't make that up, right? I mean, because uh, Chinese philosophers had said almost exactly the same thing 500 years before Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't say, by the way, I'm telling you something absolutely new here. Do unto others as you... No, he's, he's repeating common wisdom that sensible human beings had sort of said and passed along for centuries and decades. Not surprising that 
many of the teachings of the Christian faith will be held in common with persons of other religious traditions, sometimes even things that we hold in common with people who aren't religious at all but describe themselves as uh, secular people. Not surprising that some of our rituals, and that's certainly true with baptism and the Lord's Supper, some of our rituals have parallels between other religious traditions. And I think in the ancient world when Christians use the terminology of baptisma, that's the noun for baptism, uh, and the verb associated with it, baptizine. Now this is probably the worst news I have to deliver to Methodists today, but the verb baptizine really means to immerse, right? Uh, <laughs> sorry, but that's what it really means. Uh, and there's a new book about St. John the Baptist, and it, it's called John the Immerser, right? Uh, John was calling for an immersion as repentance. So I want to move on to talk about baptism, but with a kind of sense that this is not something in particular that Christians uh, uh, do completely apart from other religious traditions, though it has a very distinctive meaning in the Christian faith. I pause simply to ask if early Christians may have practiced some forms of ablutions in addition to baptism. I say this because of this mysterious passage in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 to 2 where it says, therefore let us go on toward perfection. Ah, your Methodist heart should be beating right there at that point. We know what that means, okay. No, yeah, we, we can tell you about that. Let us go on to perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation, which he says is repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instructions about baptisms, plural, uh, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now what you've got there, apart from the square brackets, is the New Revised Standard Version translation of that passage. I don't think it's a very good translation because the word that's translated baptisms in plural is not the noun that usually was used in Greek to denote the great sacrament of baptism. That noun was baptisma. In this case, it's a related word, baptismos, uh, and it's plural. And if you look in a Greek lexicon, Greek dictionary, you will find that it generally means ablution rituals. You know? And some translations of Hebrews translate it like that. Now, what it's referring to? We have no idea. Actually, it could be referring to the foot washing. If that was commonly practiced uh, as a ritual action, it could easily have been seen uh, as ablutions uh, that were repeated in the Christian community. But I simply raise that uh, passage because it's a little mysterious. We're not quite sure what that term baptismus in this case might mean but it may indicate that there were other ablution or cleansing rituals that Christians could have used in addition to the singular sacrament of baptism. Let's talk about this interesting character, St. John the Baptist. The first thing I got to tell you about John is he really wasn't like the Baptists I knew growing up in Beaumont. Uh, John the Baptist, I mean, you heard what it said about him. He had this strange stuff that he wore. None of the Baptists I knew wore clothes like that. He wore camel's hair and a loincloth, and that seems to have been about all that he wore. Uh, he ate locusts and wild honey. 
Uh, do they mean by locusts what we meant by locusts in East Texas? I mean, uh, cicadas, you know, these big old bugs that stick onto the trees. Ugh, not a good diet, I would say. <laughs> he, needs to, he needs to talk to some of the Food Channel people about, <laughs> you know, getting a little more, yeah, pr yeah a little more, I, I would say chocolate or something in his <laughs> diet. I, it, it, it's John is a wild crazy figure. That's why I say he wasn't like the Baptist. He wasn't like most of the Methodists I knew growing up in Beaumont. He's depicted kind of like an Old Testament prophet, uh, always out there. You know, prophets were uncomfortable people. Uh, if you're going to have a fun party, I wouldn't invite a prophet. They're, they're, they're likely to do some wild, uh, symbolic act. They're likely to go up in front of the king and take a a pot and smash it and say, that's what God is going to do to you if you don't repent. You know, that's, that's the way prophets work. But, but John is like these wild, crazy prophets. He's out there in the wilderness and he's proclaiming a baptisma. He insisted on baptism or immersion as a sign of repentance and interestingly for Jews and for Jews that might have a very particular meaning. In St. Matthew's Gospel, the third chapter and the ninth verse, it gives these words of St. John the Baptist, and he says, do not presume to say to yourself, this is really, this is just, just like a prophet, just like a prophet, make me feel uncomfortable, okay? We're Jews, we have Abraham as our father. Our ancestors passed through the waters of the, the, the Red Sea and the Jordan. We have a great religious heritage. And John says, don't presume to say that you have Abraham as your father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. It doesn't matter what your parents' religion was. See, seems to be saying it doesn't really matter. If your parents went through the water sometime a long time ago, that doesn't count. You know, what really matters is whether you have made that decision and you are going to be righteous, right? That's just the way prophets act. Don't invite them to your parties, you know. There are other uses of prophets, but they're not screaming fun people. One of the things we know now is that when a person becomes a Jew today, there is a series of ritual actions that they go through. One of the ritual actions is called the mikvah, and the mikvah is a, an ablution. It is a pool of water in which a person uh, is not totally immersed, but they go down in the water as a sign of cleansing. There's only one part of the, the ritual for becoming a Jew, but that's part of the, the ritual. I remember in Maryland where we lived uh, in Rockville, there was a Hasidic Jewish center in a suburban home, and I remember it had a sign that said, mikvah in the back, uh, and they were using the swimming pool as their mikvah uh, pool. There are actually other Jewish ablution rituals that Hasidic Jews sometimes practice that involve using uh, the mikvah. But uh, here's the question, and this is an unanswered question. In the time of St. John the Baptist, was the mikvah being used by Jews as a way of initiating proselytes, uh, initiating Gentile people into the Jewish faith. One of the things that we know is that a lot of people in this time were attracted to Judaism. It seemed to be 
the kind of monotheism that Plato and Socrates and other philosophers had been talking about. It seemed to have a very sensible way of living. A lot of people were attracted to Judaism. But how do you take, you know, the traditional definition of a Jew is if you have a Jewish mother. Uh, and if your mother's 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 mother had been one of the people who went through the waters of the Red Sea and through the waters of the Jordan in their way to the land of promise, that made you a Jew. Well, it's very tempting to think that maybe even in this time, uh, Jews were using the mikvah, Jews were using some kind of immersion pool as a way of saying, now you have been through the water, just like our ancestors went through the water, now you get to go through the water, and that incorporates you into the Am Yisrael, the, into the people of Israel. The problem is we don't have any concrete evidence for it uh, prior to the time of St. John the Baptist. I think that passage suggests that that's what they were practicing. Uh, because if, if it's true that there was a, a mikvah ritual, and maybe the mikvah ritual was just used by some particular group of Jews uh, back in the time of John and the time of Jesus, but if there was a mikvah ritual, then John's message would be something like this. It doesn't matter if your ancestors went through the waters of the Red Sea, the waters uh, of the River Jordan on their way to the Promised Land. What matters is that you go through the water yourself. In other words, you can't just rely on the religious faith of your parents, your grandparents, your mother, your grandmother, something like that. Don't presume, to, that, that makes perfect sense with saying, don't presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. God can raise up children of Abraham however God wants. The critical thing is have you made that particular decision? Whether that's true or not about the mikvah ritual, it certainly becomes part of Judaism right around the time uh, of Jesus. Uh, whether it's true or not, it's clear that John is calling for a personal uh, religious commitment and that that's very challenging to people in his time. Some of the Jews, like the uh, historian Josephus, regarded John as a genuinely pious guy. Others regarded him as a very disturbed dude technical psychological language, I know, but very disturbed person. You can kind of see why. He was one of those prophetic figures. There are some things that Christians hold in common about baptism. Now, next week I'm going to go on and tell you a few of the more distinctly Methodist things and some of the controversies we have as Methodists about the practice of baptism and how we understand the meaning of baptism. But I think it's very important to say from the beginning, what some of the things are that almost all Christians teach in common. The most important thing about baptism as a common thing uh, is to say that it is the nearly universal sign of entry into the Christian community. When we bring persons into the Christian community as Methodists, as Baptists, as Mennonites, as Catholics, as Eastern Orthodox, as Pentecostals, you go right down the list. What we do is we use this particular ritual that Jesus himself went through and instructed us to follow. There are a couple of exceptions, but when you start studying the exceptions, they're not that exceptional. One of them is friends or Quakers. Friends or Quakers have a thing about outward signs. They, they want Christianity to be all about inward 
religion. So if you talk to Quakers, they will say to you, we believe in baptism. Right? It's just that we think water isn't necessary. We believe in baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the thing that's really important. You need to have that spiritual experience. Water availeth not. That's one of the uh, uh, Quaker ways of saying that it's not the outward thing that counts. Well, we might differ with that because Christianity is, an, we want to say, an incarnational religion. It has to do with our bodies as well as our souls and so forth. But it's true. Quakers do not practice the outward rite of baptism. Uh, and generally, when you bring a Quaker into the United Methodist Church or other Christian churches, we insist that they be baptized with water as a sign of uh, coming into the Christian community. Uh, Salvation Army is a very interesting exception because they're part of our Methodist family. They really are. And uh, I had a Salvation Army student who graduated with his doctorate just at this past graduation a few weeks ago. And he wrote a thesis about John Wesley and his practices and how that relates to the Salvation Army. One of the things he pointed out to me, I never really knew this, is that General Booth actually practiced both baptism and Holy Communion. And then at some point in the 1860s, he made a decision to suspend the practice. But that's exactly the status of it in the Salvation Army. The baptism and communion are not ruled out. They are not forbidden, they're just suspended because the, the Salvation Army has their own ritual for joining the army, and that is you sign the Articles of War against the devil, right? Sort of like joining an army and you sign the Articles of War and you go to war against the devil. But they are not opposed to baptism or even to Holy Communion. So what appears to be an exception may not be as exceptional as we thought. I think if you go across the board, you find this to be true. Despite all of our differences about this, Christian communities practice baptism as the way in which we bring persons into the community. If you think about that, that actually resolves some of the thorny issues that we face. Why would you baptize infants? Answer, because we want to bring them into this community. And we're going to do that whether we baptize them or not, but that's the principal thing we're doing when we baptize infants or anyone else. We are bringing them into the community, and baptism is that ritual by which we bring them into the Christian community. Now, that being said, the second thing we have to say, and this is true across the board as well, baptism is only one part of becoming a Christian. Baptism is only one part of what we like to say theologically is Christian initiation. Christian initiation needs to involve training in the Christian faith, so you learn the faith. It needs to involve a personal decision to follow Christ. Uh, and to unite yourself with the Christian community. It needs to involve a public profession of the Christian faith. That's why we don't like to do baptisms and confirmations privately. It's not a private act. This is where you confess your faith in the presence of the congregation. Uh, and really, Holy Communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, is part of the process of becoming a Christian. So baptism is one part of it. it maybe it's the great symbol, the great sign of becoming a Christian, but it is only part of the process of becoming a Christian. We almost all agree that baptism requires three things. They're not big, tough requirements, but we generally say 
you got to do three things. Now, this is actually Catholic canon law, Catholic church law, but almost all churches follow this whether it's codified or not. Number one, you got to have water. We don't do dry cleaning, okay? Jesus said to use water, and we use water. Uh, I know Methodist ministers who have gone up to do a baptism, a kind of surprise baptism where somebody showed up to be baptized and they weren't expecting it, and suddenly the font is dry, and they just acted like, well, I don't think so. We discourage this practice at the theological school because uh, uh, as, as nice as dry cleaning might sound, uh, you can run down to the bathroom and get some water, okay? It's just not that big a deal, uh, and you need to use water as a sign of baptism. Next week, we're going to talk about how you apply the water, but water is one of the necessary signs. Traditionally, we say you have to be baptized in the triune name, that is to say, in the formula that's given in St. Mark's Gospel, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in fact, if you ever need to perform a baptism, okay, uh, this is how you do it. You put water on that person, or you immerse them, or whatever, and you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, modern uh, theology has questioned whether that's the only formula that we can use to name the three persons of the Divine Trinity. This, today is Trinity Sunday. You ought to be getting a sermon on the Divine Trinity, but we're going to talk about the sacraments in this period. So uh, if we were talking about the Divine Trinity, I was talking about this at our, my Sunday school class at Lover's Lane earlier. We talked about the issue of do you have to use exclusively masculine language in talking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A lot of controversy about that. Right now, the safest thing to do is to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it's almost universally acknowledged across the boundaries of different Christian communities. If you were to say something else and that person went to the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church might not recognize that as a valid baptism. It's kind of a practical issue while we're working out the issue of whether we can come to consensus about different language about the persons of the Divine Trinity. The third thing you have to have, this is really important, and it, and it sounds legalistic, but it really is important. You have to have the intention to do what the church does in baptism. Whoa, is there an echo in here? Is there, is there like, a, is, is, does that sound like a contradiction or a tautology, like de de defining itself? What it really means is this. If a Jewish actor is baptized in a play with water, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it still doesn't count, right? Because in the play, you're not intending to do what the church does in baptism. We could probably simplify that to say you have to be really intending, the person who performs the baptism at least, has to be really intending to incorporate you into the Christian community by doing this. And when you're in a play, obviously you're not intending to do that. You're just play acting at that point. Okay, so those three things we generally say are necessary. Water, the triune name, uh, and then uh, the intention to do what the church does in baptism. Here are some thoughts. It's baptism that's made us part of the Christian community. Uh, we need to recall that and reflect upon that. It is important to remember our baptisms. Now, this is one of the points of disagreement between Christian communities. Uh, for Lutherans, for example, there's a great deal of emphasis on remember 
your baptism because that's not only what's made you a Christian, but that's the sign that God has accepted you and so forth. Luther said that when he was tempted by the devil, he would remember, ego baptizatus sum, I have been baptized. Uh, and that was a, a powerful weapon against the devil to remind himself and the devil that he had been baptized. He had put the sign of, the, of Christ on himself. And yet, John Wesley says, on the other hand, just to worry you a little bit about this, John Wesley says, do not lean on that slender reed of baptism, okay? That's not, okay, because he, he's very conscious of the fact that you can deny your baptismal faith. You can fall away from that faith. You can deny Christ. We do not have a ritual to undo baptism. I heard about somebody who got called at a church and said, I want to undo my baptism. Sorry, we don't do that. But you can undo your baptism. It's easy, okay? All you've got to do is damn Jesus Christ or uh, go out and act as if you aren't a Christian and you can undo your baptism. John Wesley says, don't lean on that slender reed. You've got to watch out that you continue to live into the faith in which you are baptized. But in baptism, we are marked with one of the signs of Christ. We are marked with one of the signs uh, that Christ himself went through when he was baptized uh, and when God spoke to Jesus Christ uh, and said, You are my son, uh, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, and that in itself is worth recalling. It's kind of like, you know, remember when, you're, when you went out the door and you were uh, 14 years old and your mother said, now, Ted Campbell, you remember who you are, okay? You remember who you are. Remembering your baptism is kind of like remembering who you are. It's not a guarantee that you're not going to contradict it, uh, but it's a powerful way of saying, I know who I am and I know whose I am. That's baptism. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the Methodist nuances and some of the issues, but remember your baptism and be thankful. It's the entryway into the richer uh, Christian life and Christian experience. Get that picture out of here. Thank you. <laughs>